If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible of your own this morning uh, or one downloaded on your phone, there should be a black Bible near you, and uh, you can find Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the page for you this morning. Um, I really enjoy uh, adventure. I really enjoy danger in uh, some things. Uh, I enjoy uh, biking and hiking and things like that. And by God's grace, I, I've enjoyed football. I've enjoyed all of those kinds of things. And by God's grace, 41 years old, I have yet to have a broken bone. Yet to have a broken bone. And now everyone's thinking, you shouldn't say that. Well, I know my God doesn't work like that, so I can say that, okay? There's no karma. So, uh, no broken bones, lots and lots and lots of stitches. Like 100 plus stitches um, over the years. Um, So, I've never had an x-ray. I've never had... uh, an x-ray of my bones to see about broken bones. There's been never any question. However, I've had three CAT scans uh, because at three different times in my life, there was something seriously going wrong uh, in my body. And so uh, when you're bent over, heaving in pain and screaming in your room, it's probably time to go get checked out and get a CAT scan Once they found out uh, my appendix was about to burst, so they uh, gave me four holes in my stomach to pull that sucker out. Uh, Another time, it seems like that surgery healed together with my stomach lining and decided to rip itself apart at another time, so they had to check that one out. And then, lo and behold, on another mountain, after another mountain biking, we'll call it incident, uh, a kidney stone uh, broke loose. And so, but each of these times, And you couldn't see anything wrong with me on the outside, but on the inside, there was something seriously going wrong. I'm so thankful for uh, something like that, like an x-ray, like a CAT scan that could see deeper beyond the surface to the the source and to the the root uh, of the problem that was there. And this passage is a spiritual x-ray this morning. It's a, a spiritual CAT scan, if you will, scanning your body because maybe on the surface things look fine. Maybe on the surface, you know, no bumps and bruises, things look fine, but you know on the inside just don't feel right. Just don't feel good. Just don't feel holy. Just don't feel uh, right when you're thinking about standing before the Lord especially. This passage is a spiritual x-ray for us. And uh, it would be good for us to slow down and to consider what this x-ray is telling us about each of us as individuals. It's good for us to pause for a second and not consider someone else's x-ray, but consider our own x-ray, consider our own scan uh, of our lives. This was Paul's spiritual x-ray for the Jews. 
Because up to this point, really this entire first section in Romans, from Romans 1, 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, where we're going to end today, it's been Paul setting out to make sure that no one feels uh, that they are good enough to get to heaven on their own, to prove that there is no one in the world that is good enough to get to heaven on their own to show each and every person uh, that they're a sinner and that they deserve God's judgment and that they're, as in his words, storing up wrath for themselves on that day when you stand before him. He started with Gentiles who were living in open, unrepentant sin, even bragging about it, about it and celebrating it, saying they too would incur the judgment and wrath of God. He moved to the Gentiles who were doing the very same thing but in secret and saying one thing but doing a totally different thing. Paul said, you too are going to be judged. God knows your heart. He moved from there to Jews, not Gentile, non-Jew Romans, but uh, Jews who God had given the law in the Old Testament, whom God had chosen as His special people, whom God had given them signs and promises uh, of His love and salvation for. But they too, they didn't take advantage of those, the law. They didn't take advantage of those promises. They said them with their mouth, but they didn't live in accordance with them. Gentile, Jew, it didn't matter. Up to this point, he's showing that everyone is, is guilty. And now he just lays uh, this wealth of evidence against all of us. Uh, he, where last week I was talking about Paul, in, in one sense, laying bricks and building a two-story wall of evidence against the Jews um, so that they didn't have any way to stand before God of themselves. Imagine all of those bricks come crushing down, and now they're all on their back, having to carry that, that weight, having to carry that burden. That's the, that's the picture that Paul is, is trying to, to display to them. And so Paul, having condemned Gentiles, hypocritical Gentiles, hypocritical Jews, he predicts and assumes certain questions that the Jews would have after he's gone through his logical argument. And he doesn't even really have to guess what kind of questions they have in their mind. He doesn't even have to um, try to figure out or, or wait for them to ask the question. He already knows, and he already knows because this has been his message for decades. Every time Paul went into a new city, he would go first to the Jewish synagogue and preach this message against Jews. And then when they didn't want to hear it anymore, uh, they would have rebuttals and questions, and they would kick him out of the synagogue, and he would either go to the Gentiles of that city, or he would go to the next city over. So he knows what they're thinking. He's heard it hundreds and hundreds of times over the past 20 years or so. We could think back to Acts chapter 17 
when Paul had traveled to the city of Thessalonica. And it says that he went into that city and he uh, went into the synagogue and for three Sabbath days he uh, shared that good news with those people there. But Acts chapter 17 verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Paul knows what kind of questions they have against his logic. Paul knows what kind of rebuttals and rebukes they have. It was so strong in Thessalonica that he had to leave the city uh, before they caught him. He went to the city of Berea and... Those Jews listened to him better until the Jews from Thessalonica got to Berea uh, to, to scare him away again. But it says in Acts 17, 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. How did they agitate and stir up the crowd? Asking these sorts of questions that Paul is willingly going to put before them. Essentially what Paul is saying after that logical argument of Romans 1 and 2, he's saying, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this question, and I've got an answer for it. And he just goes on. Four different questions, four different uh, rebuttals, really to their overarching question which is, do the Jews have any advantage? Do the Jews have any advantage? To which Paul says, much in every way. And he sums it up by saying that they were entrusted with the truth. We see this in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul assumes their, their question in their mind on the, on the edge of their lips you know, as they're reading this letter that Paul wrote to them, though he had never been there. They're re- reading this letter, and they hear Romans 1 through 2, and they say, yeah, but, and they ask this question, and Paul knows it, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Essentially saying, we're, we're God's people, the Jews. And you just said that the law does us no good, that circumcision does us no good. Then what advantage do we have by being Jews? Do we have any advantage? Or or are we just like everybody else in this world? They ask the question. Paul knows it. It's in their mind. He's heard it before. Does the Jew have any advantage? To which Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted. Mark that word, entrusted. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Do the Jews have any advantage? Of course they have an advantage over the Gentiles. They had the oracles of God. They had the word of God. They had the law of God that was given to Moses and and carried by the Israelites. They had the, the prophets that wrote their 
words from God down for the people of God. They had the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs. They had all of those things, and yet they didn't take advantage of them. They were entrusted with those things, and yet they, were, they proved to be bad stewards of what they had been given. They were, imagine, being entrusted with a, a sum of money, a, a resource that could offer them life, could offer them salvation, could offer them healing, could offer them wholeness, and yet they didn't take advantage of it. So did the Jews have any advantage? Paul says, absolutely, but they didn't take advantage of it. You had the oracles of God, and they were on your lips, but you didn't believe them. You didn't live them out. To which they have another question in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? And they were. Paul, Paul brings up this question that he knows that they have. He's heard it before. What if some of those Jews were unfaithful? We could, we could say, since they had been entrusted with the oracles of God, what if some of them were untrustworthy with that which they have been entrusted with? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? To which Paul says, by no means. Again, using that language of the earlier word entrusted, if we carry that idea out, that word out, because it's, it's, this whole section is really a play on words using the, uh, the Greek word pistis, which means belief or faith or trust. They had been entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God, but some of them were untrustworthy with it. So does their lack of trustworthiness nullify the trustworthiness of God? Paul says, of course not. Of course not. How could the untrustworthiness of one nullify the trustworthiness of him who is trust, of him who is true, of him who has never lied? In fact, it, it does the, the opposite of that. The fact that the Jews and people were untrustworthy showed even more so the trustworthiness of God. When you put them next to one another, you saw that, like you would see if you look at two pieces of kind of white and off-white paper separately, they both look white, but then you bring them together and you notice the difference very clearly when you're there. Or when you're looking up at the, the stars at night, they shine best when you get out where there's no lights against that black sky. Or like a diamond is placed on a black velvet so that it stands out. Their question was, does mankind's untrustworthy, uh, untrustworthiness nullify the trustworthiness of God? And Paul says, of course not. It actually enhances it. When people are, prove that they're untrustworthy, that they lack faith, that they don't believe in the Word of God that they've been given, it shows even more so how faithful 
to the promises God is. It shows how even more true to those promises that God really is. He says, by no means, and then he says, let God be true. And that be is in uh, the present tense, uh, almost a, a command, a present tense command and imperative that God be always true, now and, and forevermore, though everyone were a liar. And we are, every one of us, a liar when compared to him who is true. Satan is uh, the father of this, this earth, and we are children of his, according to the Bible. And John 8, says that he's the, the father of all lies. And when he speaks, he speaks out of his, his very own nature, n- nature of lies. We, too, are liars. And when compared to God, it'll always prove that he's always true to his word. And then Paul quotes David using the Old Testament in Psalm 51, verse 4. Now, we had the privilege this morning of singing Psalm 51, which was good for us to uh, ask the Lord to wash us white as snow and to confess Psalm 51, 4, part A, that we've sinned against you and you alone, Lord. Well, when, Paul, when David writes that and he says, God, we've sinned against you and you alone, Psalm 51, 4b says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul uses David's words to condemn the Jews, uh, saying that, We know we're all liars. We know we're all sinners. And we've sinned against God and God alone. And in doing so, we have allowed God himself to be justified in his words when he judges us faithless, when he judges us lacking trustworthiness. Paul is using these very oracles of God that they have been entrusted with and knew in their mind, they knew Psalm 54, or Psalm 51 verse 4. They knew it really well, but they were not applying it to their life. And so we have to ask ourselves the question too, what about us? Are we who are entrusted with the Word of God? Are we uh, living in accordance with God's Word? Are we trustworthy with what we have been given? There's another question on their, in their minds, uh, likely on their lips as they were reading this letter of Romans in verse 5. And Paul puts it forward as if they're asking, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath on us? So if our unrighteousness, if our uh, untrustworthiness set next to God's righteousness and trustworthiness esteems Him 
and shows him even greater than we could have imagined, then they're asking the question, then is God really righteous to judge us for what we've done? I mean, hasn't living in sin made God look even better? So we could just keep going. We could just keep sinning and God will look even better. And, and therefore, if we're making God look better, then who is he to judge us? And Paul puts forward this question that he has heard before and he knows they're having in this moment. And he's almost embarrassed to even say it. Look, look at what he says. After asking that question at the end of verse 5 in the ESV, it's in parentheses, it says, I speak in a human way. He's almost apologizing like, I'm sorry, God, I, I'm speaking in a human I, I can't even write this out. I shouldn't even be saying this. I speak in a human way, and then he urges again, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? They knew that God would judge the world and that he would judge in righteousness, that he would judge justly. And so his judgment in the end will be righteous. It will be just. It will be correct according to their unrighteousness in that. Again, Paul is continuing to um, guess these questions, to know what's on their mind as they're considering these things. And these are not just questions that the Jews have had 2,000 years ago uh, or even back in the Old Testament. These are questions that still come up today. Is God just? Why does He judge me for, for this? Why didn't He make me, give me the ability to not do these things? And when they, you know, people, we, we start rolling out with these questions, wondering why. Why would God do this? Well, when you get to verse 7, <coughs> Paul he begins imitating the Jews using first person, pretending to speak like them and show them how ridiculous their argument is. Look in verse 7. Again, he's acting as if he's one of those Jews. And maybe he even was, remembering his past. Maybe he too had these arguments. But he is saying here in verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Again, that, that kind of same argument. If I lie and it shows that God is true, why am I being condemned? Why is that even considered sin? I'm making God look better. Well, I'm glorifying God in one sense. I'm making God higher and better than everybody else. I'm looking terrible. He's looking better. Why am I condemned for that as a sinner? And in verse 8, they question, And why, why not do evil that good may come? They're thinking, why don't I just keep doing those things if it keeps raising God higher and making God look better? Why don't I just keep living in sin? It's no big deal. God is gracious. He forgives. 
He, he will judge. We will be set apart even more. Why don't I just continue living in that way? And he says there in the middle of verse 8, having mimicked them, he says, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying. People have taken Paul's logic from Romans 1 through 2 and, and essentially slanderously charged them with saying that very thing, that, that you ought to continue to live in sin. And Paul says, no, your condemnation, their condemnation, the, those who make that kind of claim, their condemnation is just. They had just asked the question at the end of verse 7, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And Paul says, your condemnation is just. You deserve it. You deserve it. We all deserve it. Do the Jews have any advantage? Paul says, absolutely. You were given so much. You were given the oracles of God. You were given the truth about God when the Gentiles weren't because He chose you as His specific loved people, His children, and He gave you these things, and yet you were terrible stewards with the truth that you had been given. They were entrusted with this truth, but they were not trustworthy with it. They didn't believe it. They didn't live in accordance with it. In fact, they lived in opposition to it. So there, in one sense, they have an advantage because they have these truths about God. Well, let's consider our own situation. I think you could say that we who are living in the 21st century, especially in America, especially in the English world with all of the English resources, we have been entrusted with much in every way. We've been entrusted with freedom. We've been entrusted with the Word of God. We've been entrusted with multiple translations of the Word of God. We've been entrusted with multiple resources regarding the Word of God. We've been entrusted with churches upon churches upon churches that preach the Word of God. We've been entrusted with much in every way. And so what are we doing with that? There are some who live in such a way that they want to um, do what the Jews were doing in chapter 3, 1 through 8. They want to say, we believe God, we believe in the Word of God, but we're going to live in whatever way we want. They're going to take God's grace and in a sense cheapen it and say, God is gracious. He forgives. I believe Him, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in this way because I know He's forgiving, and I know He'll love me in the end. He'll accept me as I am, and I'm going to do this. It's the idea, it's the theology called cheap grace. And again, it's nothing new. This was happening 2,000 years ago by the Jews. It's happening now. In fact, uh, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
writes about this idea of cheap grace back in 1937 in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, the preaching of forgiveness, this is how he defines cheap grace. It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism into the church without church discipline out of the church. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. And this is what many believe, many live in accordance of, even now. And if we're not careful as Christians, even members of the Fields Church will do the very same thing. We'll, we'll take that sin that's in the depths of our heart that no one else knows about it and say, it's okay, God forgives. No big deal. I can continue in that and work on these other outward ones. I'm, I don't have to mess with that. I know God is gracious. He'll forgive me in the end. It's no big deal. I'm just, just going to set that over there. Just. But when we read a scripture like this, it, it is, it's like an x-ray. It's like a CAT scan looking beyond the surface that each of us can see on Sunday mornings, that each of us can see even at group during the middle of the week. And it goes down to the heart of the issue, exposing sin in our own life, exposing our own unrighteousness, exposing our own lack of trustworthiness, our own lack of faith in God. Even though we have been entrusted with so much, we know that we have been found untrustworthy. Paul doesn't even answer this question here. That question, and why not do evil that good may come? He doesn't even answer it. He, he says, essentially, I'm going to have to get to that later. And when we get to Romans 6, he's going to ask the very same question and get into it. Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I want to put that question to you as well. Having had this x-ray this CAT scan, if you will, on our lives, how can we who died to sin, and I would add, died to sin, have been made alive in Christ, how can we still live in sin? We, we ought to be doing everything we can to repent Believe and obey again the truths of God's Word. To go back to God's Word and to lay it down on our lives and let it expose anything and everything that is contrary to the Lord. That's in opposition to the Lord. We ought to let Him... Don't we want spiritual health? Don't we want to not feel that inner pain that some of you have felt 
when you got that x-ray, when you got that CAT scan and, and it exposed something, this is our opportunity to take advantage of the spiritual x-ray, the spiritual CAT scan, to allow the Word of God, the, the oracles of God, to expose sin in our own hearts that we might not sin against God, that we might draw near to Him, that we might admit that we are sinners. But Paul goes another step. In, excuse me, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he asks that question, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what was the value of circumcision? And he says, much in every way. Do the Jews have an advantage? Much in every way, he said. Well, now you look at chapter 3, verse 9, and he says something very similar. Similar question. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we Jews? Do we have any advantage? And here he says, no, not at all. Do the Jews have any advantage? Much in every way. Do the Jews have any advantage? Nope, not at all. So which one is it? Well, in light of what they had been entrusted with, they were at a great advantage, at a great privilege. But because of their lack of faith in the truth of God's Word and who He was, and their lack of faith-filled obedience to the Lord... Though they may have been an advantage because they had been given the Word of God, they didn't live in accordance with it, so they had no advantage. They were just like everybody else, condemned in their sin because of their lack of faith and lack of repentance. He says in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Not one single solitary bit. Now, imagine that, being a Jew, who have always thought themselves as God's chosen special people better than the Gentiles, Paul himself being one, and is speaking to them saying, you're the same as them. I mean, that was insult of the highest category. No, you're the exact same as them. For we have already charged that all, and underline that word all, because in the Greek it's emphatic. Paul says, and if he were reading it out loud, he would have uh, emphasized that word, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. You had the opportunity to repent of your sins and believe and walk in obedience to me so that your sin could have been removed, but you didn't. So, no, you have no advantage, Jew. You're just like the Greeks, just like the Gentiles, just like all mankind under sin, under a weight that you cannot get up under under this pressing down of you that is hurtful, condemning from time to time. And then Paul, having said that they're under sin, under these bricks, if you will, 
uh, of their own sinfulness, this burden that they're carrying. He goes to the Old Testament uh, verses that they know well and, and uses seven, eight, nine, depending upon uh, how you see these quotes, uh, different verses from the Old Testament to show them that they're under sin, to show them that they're condemned. And it's like Paul is taking verses from the Old Testament, each being a brick, and putting it on top of them. In verse 10, he quotes Psalm 14, as well as Psalm 53, which are very similar psalms, saying, none is righteous, no, not one, brick one. Brick two, no one understands. Brick three, no one seeks for God. Brick four, all have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. Brick five, no one does good, not even one. Brick six from Psalm 5, 9, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Brick 7, Psalm 140, verse 3, the venom of asps is under their lips. Brick 8, Psalm 10, 7, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Brick 9, Proverbs 1, 16, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Or from Isaiah, in verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. And lastly, the last brick, Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Brick after brick of Scripture that they had been entrusted with knew in their minds, but didn't live in accordance with, didn't believe it enough to repent and obey and follow Him. And all of a sudden, on their back, they're pressed down so much because they know God's Word has spoken directly. This x-ray of God's Word, this CAT scan, looking deep past the surface is seeing in them that they themselves are sinners in need of a Savior. Like Jesus would say, they are whitewashed tombs, um, beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. And when you read through all of those verses from the Old Testament, you can't help but see that their sinfulness, being uh, under sin, was something that the way that they were living was in opposition to God. That they weren't even seeking God. That there was no fear of God in them. Not only are they living in opposition to God, but everyone is living in opposition to God. No one is excluded from this. He said all, Jews and Greeks, all of mankind is carrying this burden of sin upon them. It's universal upon them. 
Their opposition uh, is the same opposition that the whole world has. And it shows that their opposition has affected every aspect of their life. If you just look at the body parts mentioned in these scriptures, you look at verse 13, their throat, their tongues, their lips. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 15, their feet you have there. And then in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. These bricks of condemnation uh, are because of their opposition to God. Everyone's opposition to God and every part of their, their lives is opposed to God. We just need to pause for a second and realize that we're no different. Our lips, our throats, our tongues, our feet, our eyes have led us to sin, are living in sin, enjoy sin. If we're honest with ourselves, we too would feel that weight of sin upon our shoulders as they felt some that day. Paul was laying brick upon brick of them, helping to show them that they were under sin, under that burden of sin. And then in verse 19, he says, Now we know he and they, we all know, he says, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Essentially saying, I'm a Jew, you're a Jew, and we know that what the law says, it specifically says to those of us who are Jews under the law. There's no escape for us. We have been entrusted with these oracles, with this Word of God. So the law is speaking directly to us. And he says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul is helping them to visualize when you stand before God, though you may have had sin on your lips and on your tongues and in your throats, when you stand before God on that day, you're not even going to be able to open your mouth. Back in Romans 1, he laid out the reason why people would be judged by God. And Paul said, you're without excuse. Later on in chapter 2, verse 1, same thing. You're without excuse. And we get here to the very end of his argument in chapter 3. says, when you get there and you stand before God, you're going to be without excuse and your mouth will be stopped silent, gagged because of your own sinfulness. Because of this burden of being under sin. Or what he refers to there in verse 19, under the law. You see, they thought the law uh, 
was this spiritual privilege that possessing the law made them better than everyone else. And yet, what the law was given for was, yes, to be a guide, to be godly, to be holy, but it was more to show that they weren't godly, that they needed a Savior. They're under that law, the weight of that law. They're under their own sin. And he sums it all up saying, "For by work, in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being, none, no not one, will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When Paul put forward all of those verses from the Old Testament to them, they knew that they were under sin. They were aware of their own sinfulness. They had a knowledge of their sinfulness in that moment better than ever before. And we too, if we would allow those texts, allow those scriptures, the very word of God to be the x-ray to our soul, the, the CAT scan to, to look deeply beyond the surface, we would realize too that we have a knowledge of our own sinfulness before the Lord. Do we have an advantage as Americans living in the 21st century in the English world? Much in every way. We have the Word of God. Translated resources, churches, Christians, freedom to worship. Do we have an advantage? Much in every way. Do we have an advantage over the rest of the world? No, not at all. Because even though we may have those advantages of the Word of God, some of us haven't lived in light of them. We haven't believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't repented of our sins and turned. Maybe you say, well, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we, I can keep doing this, and there's no change in us. We want Jesus to save us from hell, but he, not to save us from our sin that we are living in right here and right now. It can't be that way. Do we have any advantage as Americans living in the 21st century in the English world with all of the privileges that we have? No, not at all. We are all under sin, all under the burden of our own sin. Romans 1, 18 through 320 in that narrowing focus, no one is left out. All are under sin. Which sets the stage for 3, verse 21. But now. Everyone's under sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation, a payment by his blood to be received by faith. You see, we're all under this burden of sin. And this is the the language, this is the picture uh, that John Bunyan had in mind when he was writing that story of Christian making his journey to heaven in the Pilgrim's Progress. And he describes that burden of sin like Paul describes it here. In the opening page of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian says, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand. Maybe say the oracles of God. The word of God in his hand and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry saying, what shall I do? Well, he tried to get rid of this burden over and over on his own, but it just became more and more heavy upon him, realizing that he couldn't get rid of this burden on his own until he came to the cross. And it says, He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below the bottom, a tomb. So I ran in my dream, That just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders, fell from off his back, and began to tumble. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. How do we get rid of this burden being under our sins? We come, as Paul said in Romans 3.21, Uh, through 25, by faith in Jesus Christ. How did Burden get rid of that backpack full of sin and really shame upon him? By looking to Christ on the cross in the empty tomb. Shortly after, Christian sang this, Thus far did I come, laden with my sin, burdened with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. This is what we too need to do. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to take that burden of our sins off of us so that we're no longer under sin, 
but we're under the righteousness of God that's been given to us as a gift. Christian, I urge you, having believed those truths, repented of your sins, and trusted Christ to save you, we continually need to get out from under that burden of sin that a spiritual x-ray or a spiritual CAT scan might reveal. Let's do what the writer of Hebrews told us to do in 12, 1, and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, every weight and burden of sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Jesus, the founder and perfecter. He not only saved you, but He'll sanctify you to be more holy. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, lay every weight and burden of sin and shame down at the foot of the cross today. Once more, and again tomorrow, and again the next day, and again next Sunday when we gather together, lay it down. Look to Christ. Let His Spirit strengthen you to be able to walk in faith-filled obedience. But if you have never felt what Christian felt when that, those strings were broke on his back and his burden rolled off and he saw it rolling down the hill into the open tomb never to be seen again, if you've never felt the weight of your sin roll off your back, it's likely that you've never trusted Christ to save you. And you, in your privilege, your certain advantages of knowing about Jesus, that He died on a cross and rose from the dead, you may know it in your mind, but you've never believed upon it. You've never believed in such a way that made you feel conviction for your sin to repent and turn from it. I urge you this morning that you would repent, that you would believe and find in looking to Jesus that there is not any longer condemnation and judgment waiting for you, but peace. Because Romans 5.8 says, but God shows His love to us that while we were still sinners... While we were still under sin, while we still had the burden of bricks of sin and shame upon our back, Christ died for us. And just a few verses earlier, therefore, in 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the condemnation that Paul talks about here. Not the judgment that he spent two or three chapters uh, dissecting. Not the just judgment and wrath that is being stored up for us any longer. Through faith in Jesus Christ, your burden may be loosed. 
placed on Christ on that cross. And instead of condemnation, you get to enjoy peace now and forevermore. And if you have yet to experience that peace, I and many here around you would tell you and encourage you and urge you to repent and believe so that you could enjoy the very same thing that we have experienced ourselves. Don't let this day pass without letting the Lord x-ray and CAT scan your soul, your heart. Because if you do, you'll be found just like the Jews were found. Having the great privilege and advantage of the Word of God, but not living in accordance with it. And so having no advantage at all in the end. Let's pray. Father God, I cannot see any black and white x-ray or CAT scan on any of these individuals that stand before me. But you can. Only you are, and they are able to read the results together. Only you know what burden of sin and shame they have on their backs. And so God, I pray that you in this moment would do a mighty work a work of revelation of sin, a work uh, of revelation revealing that we are all under sin in need of a Savior, and that some this morning would turn in faith and repentance and feel the loosing of that burden fall off their shoulders as they look to Christ who died on the cross in their place who was buried in the tomb and rose from the dead on the third day, offering them life and peace and eternal life with you forevermore. Father, let us, your sons and daughters, your chosen children, through faith in Jesus Christ, experience conviction of continued sin, deep sin in our hearts that we might repent and believe and find grace in time of need to find help to walk in obedience to take that advantage of having this word of God and be good stewards who have been entrusted with it and apply it to our lives to be able to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, may we be holy as you are holy by the very power of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we worship you and praise you for who you are and for what you've done in this time together. And we pray these things in your holy and precious name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.